So what you, what's going on with LACDC? Since the last time we connected, a lot has happened. The pandemic hit. You know, we had we'd had a hard 2019, as you know, when I when I was on the couple times last year, I guess. And uh, and so for us, it was sort of like we had already been in a form of a crisis mode. Uh, you you want to just give a recap of the hard time crisis? Sure, sure, sure. Thanks. Assuming that people know who tune in, but basically, when I came on board in 2019, LACBC was in pretty rough financial shape. Um, this was due in large part because there was a, a number of transitions at leadership back to back to back, actually including me to back. So four EDs in a row within the time of a little over two and a half years. And so um, what that meant was uh, a lack of confidence, frankly, from a lot of our partners, our funders. Um, there was a lack of continuity uh, in terms of like what the organization was about of a huge number of staff turnover uh, during that time. And, um, and yeah, and foundations, to be totally honest, kind of stepped back a little bit to kind of see where things would shake out. So 2019 was a bit of a baptism of fire and ice. And, um, but what it did is it made us really um, get clear on what we, what was like essential and what was non-essential. And so the process of the first year was really about not being attached to things that were really artifacts from the past, not that they didn't have their time and place, but to not be attached to those things just because of the, the history of them, but to really assess them to make sure that they were really uh, helping our mission, helping us to meet our mission. And then, you know, of course, in a less, that's the silver lining. The hard part was that human lives were involved and uh, staff members who had been committed to the organization for, in some cases, you know, decades um, were really impacted. And we tried to hang on to those folks as long as we could throughout that year. We're looking pretty good, had a, had our, had a new plan for 2020 when the pandemic hit. So we had already been in a, in a, in a pretty, pretty like a crisis mode and then the pandemic hit and, and whatever little bit of cushion we had was expended. And that really had to do with our larger multi-year contracts with LAUSD, Metro and LADOT. Uh, sorry about that. Um, and uh, and so, so once again, in 2020, we had to move to an austerity budget. And that was, uh, that was taking a small pie and reducing it even smaller, uh, doing unilateral, um, salary, voluntary salary reductions uh, across the board and, and just tightening ourselves down to as uh, kind of like efficient uh, uh, an organization as we could become without like absolutely vanishing. So that's sort of like the update that got us to the pandemic, yeah. Have you ever had to deal with anything like that before? You wanna talk about your background a little bit? Yeah, so never, I, I've been in, in nonprofit work for, uh, before LACBC for a little less than a decade, I worked at a place called uh, the LA County, or sorry, ha, um, River LA, which was initially called the LA River Revitalization Corporation, uh, which was a group that worked at the county level to reimagine the Los Angeles River as a public space, transportation corridor, uh, uh, access to, uh, you know, uh, like a, like a cultural amenity. So instead of it being just this trapezoidal concrete channel, uh, river drain. It was meant to be, you know, a, a human space. And um, and what a time to be doing that. When oh. it, how much was pumped in there? Well, for Measure M alone, uh, the initial numbers, and once again, this is all pre-pandemic numbers, you know, they, they were gonna drive $365 million towards a river path, which was multimodal bike, walk, roll, scoot, whatever fully ADA compliant, fully set up uh, with multiple uh, access points uh, that really thought about equity and making sure that all communities had access to their river. Uh, pretty exciting notion. And, um, and that, but that was based on Measure M, which is a sales tax. And so like that whole thing has gotten weird because of, you know, where the world is today. But yeah, it was an exciting time for sure. But anyway, so that was my experience coming into it. So I'd been working at the county level for a while and then, um, and, and was most really intrigued by like thinking about the LA River as a transportation corridor or spine. That would be like a super highway for non-motorized transportation. Any alternative mode besides the car. 
Um, so it was, you know, it was, it was that really parlayed itself into like when, when the, the job came up a second time after Tamika left that I decided, okay, I'll, I'll put my hat, my hat in the ring. Um, little did I know that, that the organization itself had, had just had been in trouble for a, a while. So, so the pandemic hit, we had to reimagine what we were doing almost immediately because all of our in-person education, all of our in-person advocacy, our outreach, our work in LAUSD schools, just like on March 12th, like the lights went out. Um, that, that's why you actually, one of the non-essential people turned out to be the education director because of uh, schools. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Colin's whole whole program was just, it just evaporated. It was the craziest thing to sit down with him and just sort of look at like this project that he, and also our safe routes to school with LADOT was another one of his multi-year contracts also required that we be on campus. In fact, we have bike trailers with 30 some odd bikes trapped at, on LAUSD campuses that we can't even get access to easily. Um, and 30 some odd bikes per campus. Huh? 30 some odd bikes per campus and there's like right. 30 campuses. Right, right, no, yeah. 30 some odd bikes for two, two campuses. That's, that oh. was the size of the program. But those trailers were meant to move from campus to campus for these, uh, these bike, sort of bike, um, bike clubs that we were, we were gonna run to move kids away from strictly ball sports, baseball, football, basketball, to lifelong kind of uh, recreational activities like bicycling, which could become commuting and like lifelong learning. We're, the LEUSD was trying to reimagine their curriculum to include non-ball sport activities that would be more lifelong. It's amazing how bikes have to do with so many things that, that go on in countries we think of as being advanced compared to us. You know, like bike education, uh, as you see in some of the more socialized countries. Yeah. I guess yeah. Japan and like the Netherlands and the Scandinavia, or I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such an amazing, it's such an amazing invention that really maximizes human potential on every level. It's, a, it's the most beautiful device. Um, it's much more than a vehicle. It's, it's a, you know. Um, Are you falling in love? Well, it's only the passion for the bicycle itself and the people who, who are passionate about the bicycle that keeps me in the spot I'm in to be, I mean, everything else has been so hard. I, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's because of how good the idea of, it, of the bicycle, it's, it's, the, it's the quality of the idea of what a bicycle is and what it represents that keeps me in the fight. I and I that. go on about that if you want. I mean, like for me, it's, it's, it's really about like, it's a problem solving device. It helps you become more resilient and self-sufficient. You learn how to maintain your own bike. It's within reach to, to, to learn bicycle bicycle maintenance. It helps you to navigate your area and your region. It helps you to navigate your own personal fitness and your connection to your neighborhood. And, uh, and it also helps you to understand the conditions of your neighborhood and whether or not it is uh, properly supported or not properly supported from the, the condition of the road surface to the quality of the air. I mean, it is the ultimate magnifying glass on what it means to be human in community. And then if you wanna go out on your own for a solo ride, it can be the most amazing uh, uh, trip into yourself and sort of escape from all that other stuff. So it, it operates very much as an individual endeavor and it also is massively community oriented. And so um, I do agree that some of the more, what, do you say civilized or evolved? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't, I said socialized, but I was thinking more of like the whole package, you know, where, they, where they're concerned about, you know, your metrics from birth to, to the end. And, and they realize that, you know, public health is connected to transportation and then they, then they start teaching it in schools because it all makes sense. Yeah, keeping so track. That's what the the LADOT program was supposed to be was to create bike clubs for kids to really start learning how how to be uh, more resilient, more self sufficient, more connected to their communities by bicycling. Um, and having that supportive community of a club was the really beauty of that idea. 
so that there was membership, there was, there was, you know, they had colleagues or they had partners to help them figure out things and to ride in community as well. It's a totally like basic, simple, beautiful idea, um, but we can't get on campuses right now. And, um, and so, uh, you know, what we are doing is, I mean, I should state that we, we've worked very hard to maintain virtual classes for Metro Best. We do a couple of those a month which is like down from the, 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 you know, five to eight that we did a month before we're down to one or two. Um, we still are doing our LAUSD um, uh, PE classes, um, but they're virtual, totally different experience, right? I mean, there's a lot you can do online, riding a bike. You're doing virtual PE classes? Yeah, but they're, they're more content, right? They're not like, um, we're bringing in special guest speakers from various parts, actually an international perspective. Um, and they're sharing everything from bike machines to what it means to be a bike Olympi uh, an Olympics level uh, bicycle athlete uh, to uh, folks who are you know, starting their own businesses that are bicycle related. What, what, what's up? what do you mean by bike machines? Like ice cream makers, right. like coffee okay. grinders, like DJs, uh, DJ booths that are powered by human-powered pedaling. Yeah. yeah. So we have a, and, and unfortunately, because it's LAUSD and it's kid and they're minors, it's nothing we can kind of share like on our website or whatever because it's meant to be, you know, it's it's meant it's LAUSD. They've got very stringent policies around sharing anything that's related to kids um, that has them interacting, and so so. So anyway, it's 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 but it's happening. And it's just happening at a scale that we had not planned for. And then, uh, in the midst of all these opportunities or or programs disappearing, you also have opportunities probably being coming up with, you know, people want to bike more. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we had a couple rapid response um, programs that we did. I want to talk about, and then. And yeah, generally speaking, there's this opportunity where people are, um, of course, I want to not minimize the impact on essential workers and people who are frontline workers who are forced to continue to commute. But there's a large cross-section of folks who used to bicycle commute who are now working remotely, like myself. And so, um, so yeah, there is this opportunity. Uh, we've seen this massive, I don't know if you've seen the Strava data. Have you seen the Strava data that they have on their... Uh, Strava Metro, I think is what it's called. I'll, I'll send it to you. It's awesome. And you can see this, you can see year to year, month over month, this, this massive, almost 100,000 person increase mm. in Los Angeles of ridership from literally March 18th until uh, as we're coming in towards the fall season. It's starting to start to drop off like in, uh, I guess, probably September is when it started to go back down. But it was this massive bump. And that bump had to do with the fact that there's this, you know, biggest bike boom since the 70s of folks realizing they can't go to the gym, they can't go to the theater, so get on the bike. And, um, and so that's been an exciting thing to witness, how, how it's translated to the movement of creating safer, more equitable and healthy streets. Um, we're still at the very early days of this. And my hope is that those people are going to start demanding along with us that, that, that the street, the condition of our streets needs to really change. Um, yeah, another thing that's come up is slow streets, uh, open streets in other places. And now it, I'm just remi remembering that you are all of a sudden on the Bicycle Advisory Committee. Yeah. Yeah, that happens sort of in the midst of all this, too. So I am a member, uh, uh, I'm the mayoral appointee, the most recent mayoral appointee to the Bicycle Advisory Committee. Um, and... Uh, and that's been an amazing kind of journey into like a, the history of bicycle advocacy in LA. It's been around since 1973. I've been around since 1972. I can tell you how long that is. Um, and it's uh, great. I mean, there's some, there's some, there's some amazing, uh, amazingly passionate and thoughtful people on the committee. Um, you know, it's an all volunteer group. They are um, appointed by their council members. Uh, but there's no budget. There's no. There's not a lot of a ton of agency that is not created from the very like passion of the people on the committee. Mm -hmm. um, and we meet every other month, and then we meet in committees on the off months. But uh, mostly for me, as a relatively new member, I, I feel like I'm I'm like I'm the rookie who's learning all the old history and all the 
and and all the mistakes and all the all the things that have worked in the past and, and trying to like absorb as much as I can. But it's been great and I'm honored to be a part of it. Yeah, it's like a bunch of wise owls and you know you have to want to go and get that that wisdom. Yeah. Or something. I don't know, maybe not. But it's we should we should publicize the meetings more. At least we should we, you know, I I put one on the air. I think they may do that on their own now, but you know, it might be cool like they uh, like the Santa Monica City Council meetings that for some reason are interesting to listen to. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think Glenn would be totally up, 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 for, or up for that, uh, maybe even one of the committee meetings. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll, I'll raise that with him. I think that'd be great to employ. I mean, it's definitely been, there's a public notice that goes out and because of the Brown Act, anybody can attend. And there's a time for public comment at the beginning of the meeting. Once the meeting gets started, um, Glenn is generally pretty cool about if someone really has something that they want to say, he'll try to make space, uh, but just as an obligation to get through the meeting within two and a half, three hours, usually we, we do the public comment at the beginning. But yeah, I'll just make a pitch. If you really want to understand uh, what's going on in bicycle advocacy across the, the city, sorry, I should say the city of LA only, um, then, then tune into the, the, the Bicycle Advisory Committee. So you're getting a picture of bicycle advocacy in the city, which for LACBC, I mean, that's what you do, right? Well, yeah, we're in the city of LA, but we're the county. Oh, the county, right. Right. The way that LACBC was incorporated by Joe Linton and Ron Milam was to think about it at a county level to match uh, how Metro was, was organized. And we thought, or they thought at the time, that it would allow LACBC more access to funding and bigger multi-year contracts. So it was a strategic plan, not that it was ever big enough or, or funded well enough to actually uh, to operate at that level. But, but, but even back then, they recognized that change needed to be systemic. It mm. couldn't be done in these one-off little corridors to really uh, create the impact that we were looking for to create safer, more livable LA. Um, and so that's why it was the county coalition, not just the city. Mm -hmm. Genius. Yeah, I mean, yes, and um, and I'm standing by the county uh, level because I think that it's the right idea. Um, for various reasons, we haven't been able to like gather the momentum to to really leverage that that sort of that that elevation or that view. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's wrong in its thinking, and I think we just we just have to. Um, we have to get a couple breaks where we're not just dealing with these sort of um, challenges back to back to back. Well, you do work with the with Metro and LADOT. Is LADOT county or city? City. city. Metro's county. Metro's county. And Metro, you know, Metro is uh, is massive, as you know, even though they're hurting pretty badly right now based on the the downturn in ridership and and the sales tax uh, measure M, not really uh, the projections for what that that is going to be able to do are way down. So there's some budget short shortfalls is the wrong word even that they're confronting. Um, but but yeah, I mean it was an idea to think about addressing the issue of, uh, of our streets at scale. And so we that's that's that was the idea. But I I realized that back a while ago I mentioned two responsive things that we did at LACBC or like rapid response programs that we did to deal with or to show up for um, people during the pandemic. And one was Bike Match, which I, which Colin and I also collaborated with on day one, but the idea of a one for one, uh, you have a bike that you're no longer using, it's in your closet, or if you're lucky enough to have a garage, it's in your garage and, and, but there are people, over 500 people have signed up for our, on our form who are really in need of a bicycle can't find one that's really suited for them, partially because of the bike boom, there's a lack of inventory, but partially because they just maybe can't afford one. And so we're, we started that program, we've matched, you know, 50 some odd people so far, which is pretty exciting. And then we were able to sort of increase it to be not a one for one, but a, a one to many by getting a sponsorship from Pure Cycles. We got a bunch of frames that were sort of half built. And so we did this bike match build party and I sent you pictures of that a couple of weeks ago. And it was awesome. We just got bike mechanics and, and hobbyists who are not working, because bike mechanics are working their butts off right now. 
so they were not necessarily available. So in the middle of the week, some of them came out from various shops, but mostly it was just hobbyists, people who had a bike stand and some tools and were willing to like, you know, work. We paid everybody because we wanted to make sure that we honored their work. This is not a volunteer thing. We knew th those people needed jobs too. And so sort of this beautiful virtuous cycle where we created this moment uh, we got this donation of bikes that were incomplete. We ordered parts. We waited, we waited, we waited. We got some SCAG mini grant money to help fund it. Um, we didn't have enough, so we went to Warner Brothers. We asked Warner Brothers if they could help us out. They kicked us some money. And so we were able to build like uh, over 40 bikes in that one three-day stretch and hand them out, uh, all of them, uh, uh, that Thursday. It was kind of an amazing feeling. First time many of us had seen each other in months. Um, we did social distancing, we created pods uh, where people weren't next to each other. Um, and it really showed a lot of things to me I wanna share. Like one is just um, the nature of bicycle people and how collaborative they are, um, how positive they are when they're working together towards a common goal. Um, and it was very tactile because we were actually taking bikes from frames and forks all the way to completed bikes, which was pretty cool to see the transformation. Um, but it also really put into high relief just how insidious and mean this, this virus is because you know every time someone wants to share a bike tool or needed help on something to get leverage or to, you know, or, or just to even like exchange parts, we had to think about it. And it was just heartbreaking um, to just be in a position where, um, where we have to be conscious as social creatures about every interaction, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But we persevered and we got the bikes built and, and nobody reported, you know, came out feeling, you know, got, no one got sick. It's the first gathering that we've even attempted, which was by design, not public for, the, for everyone to come and visit. It was very like locked down, but we still did it. And um, it was worth all the planning and all the effort for sure. Yeah, so you had the, who was there? Were the people who were to get the bikes there? Just no. the people working on the bikes? Yeah, we had separate pop-up tents that were nine feet away on average. And um, we asked everyone to bring their own tools. Of course, not everyone has every tool, um, you know, headset presses, things like that we had to share. Um, but like plenty of hand sanitizer, we were masked up the whole time. And then on the fourth day, we went to an open park in Burbank at the Point Center which was this sort of industrial, whatever, office park, uh, also a closed office essentially. So they gave us access and we could get enough distance. And we basically, um, we, we set up like a, a time and a time specific for people to come and pick up their bikes. And mm -hmm. so that's how we kept it from becoming a crowd. But once again, all that extra layers of effort was just like, you know, the way we wanted to do was like have a bike prom where, you know, we, we celebrate this party and like, we got all these bikes lined up, you know, invite everybody to come meet their bike, take a portrait, a picture of them with their new bikes, the handover from the mechanic to the recipient. Like we had all these grandiose ideas about how to make it a community event. And we had to strip all that stuff out because, uh, you know, public health guidelines are saying we shouldn't congregate and gather. So we, we didn't want to take that risk. Um, it's such an interesting strategy to create new cyclists. Yeah, a, you know, because you're a membership organization. I, I don't know how much you rely on membership for, you know, all of your, uh, you know, existence. But if you just make more of more of us, then, you know, you, you could turn everybody into. So this is a like a creative project. What, how much what, what is your what would you say the the bread and butter of it of your work is if there is such a thing? Yeah, um, well, it was a creative project, but it, it did, it was all about, you know, part of our mission of, of, um, of bringing people along and into the movement, into the, into the idea of getting on a bicycle in the first place. So, you know, one of the barriers to entry before you even have to deal with the, the lack of humanness of our streets is just, you know, people not having a bicycle since they were kids. There's just so many folks that we met over bike match that were like, I haven't really had a bicycle since I was 12. And these are like 40, 50 year old people. So um, there, there is a surprising number of people who are open to it, but just can't imagine going into a bike shop and, and getting themselves a bicycle for whatever reason. Um, 
the bread and butter of LACBC is definitely like every other sector of our society uh, evolving right now. Um, you know, our bread and butter in the past had been doing these, doing advocacy uh, by, uh, you know, working in communities through our chapter system, our 13 chapters to advocate for better bike infrastructure, better bike culture, just, you know, uh, better policies on the road, rules on the road. So that's a part of our work. Uh, that, that was a harder part to fund um, outside of the foundation monies that we were, we were, we were winning. Um, the other big part of our work at Bread and Butter was the, the programs I've described going into LAUSD, working with Metro, working with LADOT um, to actually get bike education and, and outreach going. Um, and I think those programs were making an impact. They were, they were heading in the right direction. They needed to get to scale. They needed to get more and, and bigger, but they were, I think they were, vi they were good ideas behind those programs. Um, programs so, like, like what, what were some of the specific programs? Well, like the Metro Best program I, I, I shared where we do the, the classes and the rides, bicycle education safety classes. Um, uh, or safety trainings, I should say, um, and our LADOT uh, safe routes to school work, right. um, and those things that I was mentioning before. You mentioned them all. Yes. Okay. Got it. Yeah. yeah. That, those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because it puts us in a weird position with groups like LADOT and Metro, which, you know, part of the instinct is to is to try to keep them honest about the promises they make about the streets that they're supposed to maintain and build for people. And to be the bug in their ear to say, these streets are not doing their job other than moving traffic, vehicular traffic. At the same time, these are the same agencies that are responsible for moving people. And so for us to sort of try to encourage that, that work and through, through our um, through our relationship with L LCI's leagues, cycling instructors, and and our educational background, like, like, so it's like calling out the very institutions that you're trying to keep honest. So that's a we've talked about this in the past. It's always been a a challenge that LACBC has tried to navigate. Um, but what's interesting about the pandemic is because those programs have been sort of like basically postponed or evaporated we've had to become more responsive with our bike match and bikes mean business programs. And then we've also been going to corporate uh, potential corporate sponsors because the bike boom, bike industry is doing well right now. Mm. So I attended the People for Bikes, uh, most recent leadership, uh, bike leadership conference, very industry-based, uh, not a lot of advocacy groups there, but I asked them if I could kind of uh, attend and, and sort of see what the bike industry's thinking about. and. Um, you know, what's interesting about that whole relationship, you'd think that bike, bike brands would be more interested in supporting advocacy for safer streets so that they could get more people to buy bikes and then safer streets and it's sort of like this virtuous cycle. But it's really not been the case in my year and a half or year, almost two year experience. It's just not been the case. Oh, speaking uh, of um, bike companies, uh, can you tell me about uh, Michael Fishman is, along with you, somebody who donated to KPFK through Bike Talk, and um, I was talking about that and thanking him, and he, he's president founder of Pure Luck, and he said to ask you about the, the initiatives that you're working on together. Yeah, well, there's a number of things. So, so Michael's our, is, has been serving as our board chair for a, about a year and a half. Um, he is the co-founder of Pure Cycles, which he founded when he was in college in, in uh, Wisconsin, um, at Madison. Uh, he recently actually just sold the company not so long ago. So he's, uh, he sold it to JBI, which is a components group uh, company. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, Michael, you know, Michael understood that uh, as I was coming onto the organization that we needed to identify, um, we need to find other sources of revenue very quickly. And so he's been instrumental in helping to introduce me to various uh, uh, new types of board members um, who, who can help us fundraise and, 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 and basically partner with groups like Warner Brothers and, um, and other groups at that level. And so 
so that's that's just sort of like a little bit of an internal look. But you know, Michael's main mission is really as board chairs, he's really been focused on how do we think about infrastructure? How do we think about um, about applying the right leverage to get elected officials to see uh, bicycle infrastructure and, and just multimodal non-vehicular infrastructure as a priority, which is very challenging right now because there's so much need across the spectrum of needs from the lack of affordable housing to food security to all these other things that seem to be taking precedent. And so, um, so yeah, so Michael has been a great partner in, in, in trying to think about how we can do that. And one of the things that we're working on right now, we're just in the early stages is a scorecard um, that uh, essentially ranks the, the, the bikeability, the walkability of the neighborhoods that make up Los Angeles. And the scorecard, um, we're working with a couple of really great interns because we really need to rely on intern power now more than ever. Um, one from UCLA and Darren and, and one from Occidental College, Anna. Um, so we're looking at different lenses and different criteria by which we measure the, the, you know, the safety and the equity and the healthiness of our streets. So it's, we're, just, we're just at the early stages, but the idea is then take those, this scorecard and bring, it to, um, and bring it to the council members and say, look, this is kind of what the data is telling us about your, your district. Um, and, uh, and there's definitely room for improvement. And we'd like to sort of work with you on, on how to address those, those needs that you have in a totally data-driven way. Um, do you have more time? Yeah. Good? Okay. I, uh, I'm, I'm good till two. Okay. So when I, when we hear this, it'll be after, it'll be, uh, tonight. Well, I'll play it for the first time. It'll be after an interview with, uh, Tafari Bain and a board member of Cyclovia on their 10th anniversary. Yeah. Did Joe Linton, who was also a co-founder of Cyclovia, huh? I think he was part of the, I think he was part of the like initial advisory group. I, um, I think so. I mean, it was Adonia and um, Aaron Paley, I think were, were, were like maybe identified as the key, as key leaders in that. But, but I, I don't know for sure, but I think so. It was just, I was just reflecting. Adonia, does she also, they all come from Eco Village. All yeah. these people, Ron Milam, Joe Linton, Adonia. And uh, some other people. This, book, this is the quintessence. Have you read this? I, I have it read parts of it. It was in it was in my reading nook for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you have to say it though because it's it's an audio podcast. Sorry. Uh, yeah, bicycle race, transportation, culture, and resistance. Uh, Adonia E. Lugo. I highly recommend this read if you want to understand what's sort of the the recent history of of, of bicycle culture and bicycle advocacy in Los Angeles. Um, it's just, uh, and LACBC is, is, is listed throughout the, the book in some of the ways that it showed up as an organization was some of the ways that it failed. So it's a great read. It's an important read. Yeah. And so there's a couple of different directions I want to go, but I, I think, you know, talking about Cyclovia, uh, you know, I, sometimes I want to talk about, I feel like we could have, we could win by trying to get legalistic and talk about, you know, people getting killed and, you know, cars being the leading cause of death of children or the 40,000 a year. But Don, our co-host said to me, you know, people don't care. They think of that as being acceptable, you know, because they don't know these people or most people don't, aren't personally touched by it. And then I thought, well, actually, that's not what motivates me either. And what motivates me is when, you know, I have a good writing experience yeah. on the street. And then I think, well, why can't I have that more of the time? And I think Cyclovia is kind of the perfect vehicle for that, for that to happen. So it's a great strategy. But, and there, are you, are, is LACBC involved in, in Cyclovia? We have been, yeah. I mean, back in the day, I mean, Yes, we, we generally have a booth there or we will organize a ride there. Sometimes we'd organize our Metro best ride, see their beginner end somewhere around a, a Cyclovia. Um, you know, definitely have, have tabled at uh, Cyclovias uh, for years. And um, I think when it was, 
when it was coming into existence, LACBC was uh, somewhat of a fiscal sponsor um, early, early on um, before it went off its, you know, on its own direction. And I would agree. I mean, when you talk to Romel and, and the staff there, they, they're really sort of doubling down on the joy factor. They're like, look, let's not litigate just how the, the, the dark side of the, the, the upsetting side of things. Let's really focus on the benefits of cycling and walking. Because uh, right, cyclovia is not just a, a bike thing. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I've been given that note as well from various people that you know, especially as we were going through uh, the aftermath of, of you know starting with the George Floyd murder and and all the conversation around uh, social justice, um, anti-racism work, and 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 just equity, the need to fight for that. Um, it can get pretty heavy and exhausting. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we, we, we try not to lose contact with this idea that uh, biking is about the being free to, to, the freedom to ride freely, right? Without worry of, of vehicular violence or any other kind of violence. And so the more we can stay in touch with that, that notion that it's just such a positive, such a affirming, such a community-based um, so, like good thing to get on a bike, um, uh, you know, the better in spite of all the, in spite of all the forces that seem to be working against getting on a bike in that way. And so that's what Cyclovia is great for, is it just sort of, it removes all the barriers to entry. It removes the cars, it removes, um, you know, uh, it gives families the excuse to be together in a, in, a, in a way that everyone from the most experienced rider to the most novice rider can feel supported. Um, you know, it's a, it's a great way of getting to know your city and your, and your neighborhood uh, or other people's neighborhoods. So there's just so many ways in which it removes the barriers to entry that that's, that is what makes it great. The, the challenge is how do we move it from just being a car holiday to being an everyday, this is just the way it is. And that is going to require much more political will and just a new approach to the advocacy that we're doing. Well, speaking of political will, I mean, we have this plan for protected lanes that goes throughout a lot of L.A. city called Mobility Plan 2035 that was signed on to by the, I guess, the entire city council, uh, all of the council members, right? And not getting done because there's no will to do it, but and then nobody knows that it even exists. Like the average person on the street does not know. Yeah. That. Well, that's exactly the point, right? That the uh, mobility plan uh, 2035, designed, thought out by some of the smartest people, uh, you know, urban planners, uh, transportation experts, and uh, and elected to were involved with that whole thing, um, but. People don't know about it because the public engagement, which was the next phase, was never fully, didn't really fully happen. And so the problem with a great plan like that, that doesn't have the public engagement going like that's married, it's like a one-two punch, is that um, at the worst case scenario, people feel like, you know, this plan is yet another government Bigfoot on top of us and they didn't check in with us. And then the NIMBYs can come out and say, we weren't consulted. And then and both ends of the spectrum from the folks who are like, uh, they don't take away our parking spaces because our businesses depend on it to the people saying, don't put in bike lanes because then it's gonna gentrify our neighborhood and displace people. And so that's why it's plans by themselves can be so easily shelved uh, is when the public engagement, which is a huge lift and requires uh, a ton of resources and time um, is so important because you gotta, you gotta have people see themselves in the plan. And that thing was a maybe, from my understanding, while brilliant in so many ways, not perfect, but brilliant in so many ways, because there wasn't that, that, that community, that invitation to the community to really own part of that process and feel like it was their own, it was their own plan as well. Um, you know, it's been shelved. I think that's probably why there's not outrage because like you said, nobody knows about it. So there's a, a lot, a big part of the approach for a lot of, I guess, the organizations and, and, and for Metro and they realize how important it is to the engagement because then people say, otherwise we, we weren't told about it. Yeah. But 
what if you think of being able to safely get around as a right? Do you have to go and ask your neighbors? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have the same thing about speed humps. It's like the, the and you can talk to John Yee of LA Walks about how to get speed, bump, speed humps in. Can't even call them speed bumps because it's uncouth apparently, but speed yeah. humps. There's something it's, wrong about the word bump. It should, be, it, should, it should be like a right. It should be like, oh, this thing slows down cars in neighborhoods where people are walking and biking and their kids. Seems like a no brainer. What do we like? What kind of scientific study do you need to do? How many people do you need to possibly talk to about that? It's like, it is an intervention that's simple. It doesn't take a lot to maintain. It's not expensive. Like, what's the big deal? Um, yeah, I mean, I, what, I think it has to do with education for me. And that's where LACBC was really playing a role in, at LUSD and all of our education programs where you sort of like, you raise the next generation of people to to understand the cost benefit analysis of a speed hump or of removing big buttons entirely and just timing traffic lights so that they privilege people on foot or on bike over people on cars. I mean, if you were to really have people to stop and think about what they're actually sacrificing versus what they perceived are sacrificing, then I think most rational people would be like, you know what, it's worth the extra few minutes to let an old person cross the street or a person on a bike have to not put their foot down on their way to wherever they're going or to slow down traffic around a school. It's like, it's, 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 it's not, it's not, it should be, there should be a baseline understanding that education, I think would help people to like, oh, okay, I'm an educator. I understand now why we put these interventions in place. It's actually for my benefit and for my community's benefit. And, um, and you don't have to convince me because I, I can think my way through this. I think where we run into troubles is, is this brings us back to the conversation of more socialized systems where they recognize that that, that that investment at the front end in education and health will create a community of folks who, who value that and who fight for that and who, who expect it as sort of like a, like you said, like a right. So what other places in the world are you looking at for bike infrastructure? Yeah, we, we just had a, we, on our LAUSD program, we just had a Danish, uh, Thomas came in, I don't want to mispronounce, Reeves, I think is his last name, uh, came in and spoke about, um, about uh, what's going on in Denmark. Even within America, like you, you look at, uh, you look at what's, what's happened in New York over the past, you know, 10 years, there's massive change there. And, and I think that had to do with an educate, like, a, like a, a campaign that got people to think about the quality of their lived experience and what simple interventions or simple changes in behavior could make Manhattan in particular an easier place to be. But it's hard for people to imagine that until they actually see it, right? So it's like the chicken and the egg thing. Um, in that case, you had a mayor in Bloomberg and a transportation czar and Sada Khan who are just like, we're doing this and, and, uh, and we're, gonna, we're gonna start with small lightweight interventions that are not expensive or not permanent just to kind of sketch out and show people what might be possible. So yeah, I, I, I like that model, even though the power structure is different there, the mayor has more power there than, than here in LA. It's a different kind of a scale in terms of sprawl from a tight island to a massive a county. So they're not one for one. But there are lessons to be learned there about like how through education and some political courage, things can get done. So yeah, I've been thinking that it would be nice to be able to hammer some, I don't know how anything gets done. I mean, you know, how it's gonna get done here differently from how it got done in New York City. But just to hammer certain concepts, you know, um, so the, until everybody gets it, you know, we've been talking about this, we, you know this. Um, what, are there some that, that you feel like you're, you're hammering away at and you want to focus on? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think not to get too specific about what's going on because of the pandemic, but I think that there is an opportunity here, right? You have to sort of like meet the challenge of the moment. And right now, any kind of strategy or theory of change that doesn't think about how we come out of this or I, I know people like four months ago were talking about what does recovery look like? Notice how people aren't even using that language anymore. Mm. For me, it's m less about recovery because it's like recovering back to what? And by the way, I don't even know if I wanna go back to that in the first place. It's more about building uh, a prior prior prioritizing resilience. Like, like 
it's not about getting back to where we were, it's about becoming more resilient so that we are, can get to where we need to go. And that has to do with like this, like multi, uh, like a complex campaign around raising awareness to education about why these interventions really do improve the lived experience in Los Angeles. It's about um, putting it into terms that's for the next generation and, and for, for people you know, who, are, who are grown already. But it's also about like part of the issue with our specific region is the sprawl and the idea that there's so many VMTs that we all have to travel, we think we have to travel to get from place A to B, VMTs, vehicles mile, um, vehicle miles traveled. And so as long as we have to travel as far, as often, at the same times of day, uh, we're in this quagmire. And so I'd love to get around uh, this. I'd like to sort of spend more time thinking about how do we reduce those VMTs in the first place so that we can actually, what are the strategies that are gonna get it to the place where people don't have to travel as far, as often, at the same time of day? And just use that as a sort of a starting point. Let's, let's actually try to solve for any one of those three things. You know, right now, here's a wild idea. And I'm not even sure without boiling the ocean how you'd even do this. But you've got, you've got tens, if not hundreds of thousands of square feet of office space in downtown LA that are sort of like not being used right now. And yet we have an affordable housing problem where people have to travel from great distances. There's the VMTs to get into uh, especially essential workers, frontline workers to, the, to those spaces. Um, while, while right there in the midst of it all are these empty buildings. So like, how can, we be more, how can we be more thoughtful about using the resources we already have to address reducing those VMTs so that our commutes can be about different things other than rushing, racing to get from point A to B to survive in this massive metropolis. And I'd love to sit down with people in health and people in education and people in across all sectors, urban planning to really think about, well, how do we design ourselves out of this problem that has us having to go as far stressed out in stuck in traffic for as, as often as we do and not just rely on these, um, these super fit kind of people who are outlier thinkers, you know, uh, the historical cycling community in LA or people are like, I'm not going to, abide by the status quo. I'm not going to do that. Screw that. I'm not going to be put in that box. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to actually go against the trend. Um, that's a lot to ask of the average person, the average parent, the average, uh, uh, you know, person who's got a family or the person who doesn't have a family. It's, it's a lot to ask of someone in the current setup. So I'd love to spend some time looking at VMTs in particular um, and, and start to like design a way out of being stuck in, in, in cars as often as we are. Well, I mean, the, the, uh, we're now having this experience where so many people are working from home and, you know, who knows if school will ever be the same now that we know that it can be done. And that's a lot of traffic right there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then for the uh, folks who are, who, are, who are taking those essential trips, you know, the roads would open up a little bit more who are required to like move big and heavy items. I mean, I, I recently um, came into the possession of a cargo bike, an e-carbo, uh, uh, urban arrow. Um, it was actually part of, um, uh, it was used and it was just, it, I just was able to get into it and, and it's completely changed my life. I mean, I, I've always been a, a kind of a purist on, on my own power, but to be able to put an entire trunk load of groceries in the, my front basket and uh, to make these quick hops of less than three miles without even breaking a sweat hills or no hills it's completely changed my my notion of what's possible on a bicycle and yet and yet uh i've had a, a number of scary even with the size of a big cargo bike i've had a number of ex uh, scary close calls where um uh yeah even for me i, I go god man that 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 could have been it that could have been it for me um and so uh it's just not about relying on the courage of a few kind of like progressive outside of the box thinkers. We, we, we've got to make it more of a, um, yeah, we've got to make it more realistic. Um, and that requires systemic change that's upstream of just uh, education, of just uh, advocating and banging on the doors of, of, of elected officials. That has to do with 
that has to do with actually changing the the design of our culture. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And as long as people, once again, have to travel as far as often at those two times of the day, we are stuck in this grind that's, that's leading us nowhere fast and, and actually costing many lives, both in terms of immediate uh, like collisions and crashes all the way to the long-term effects of being you know, of being stuck in traffic and those health outcomes of stress and, and obesity and all those things that we, we know are killers. And yet we're not, we're not treating this as a public health problem. We're not treating this as a priority. Well, thank you for talking to me and, and uh, to Bike Talk. We're over our time and I appreciate it. Do you, is there a call to action you wanna put out there or like just yeah. what you want? Quickly. And, and th thank you for uh, making time for, for me, Nick. And, and, and I hope to come back sooner than like less time between visits. Yeah, um, yeah on, on December 10th. Fire, you can, sorry, you can do some fireside chats. I'd love to, if that's, if that's, if that's helpful. I'm, I'm down to sit down with anybody. Um, we're having a, a, a virtual holiday member party coming up uh, on December 10th. Um, we're just putting it together now. We're gonna try to make it uh, a nice, Interact, as interactive as possible experience. That's December 10th. If you're a member of LACBC, uh, we sent it out in our newsletter yesterday on Thursday. So just uh, check it out, sign up on a, our RSVP list. Um, if you're not a member right now, that's okay. You can always sign back up. Um, and, uh, and just thanks for your support out there and, and keep riding. Um, that reminds me, I have to renew my membership. Yeah, awesome, Nick. All right. And support KPFK. Like, do it. Like, we need these channels. We need the opportunity to hear from many more folks than me about how to make this uh, region more livable, more equitable, just more fair, just better. You know, if you're listening now, it's like, it's important to, it's important to just give whatever you can. And, I, and I'm speaking as a, as a nonprofit leader who, who says the same thing about LACBC. We need each other to, to get this work done. All right, well, thank you, Eli. Eli Kaufman, Eli Kira Kaufman, Executive <laughs> Director, LACBC. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 